Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we're a needy people. Uh, Lord, you know our need and you care. Because you're our Father. You've, you've introduced ourselves, us to yourself in this way. Who knows us and who loves us and is powerful to save. Lord, so you know our need today and I pray that you'd meet it in a way that only you can. God, I pray that you'd speak to us in a way that only you can. Lord, I pray that you would still us in a way that only you can. Uh, Lord, I confess that my, my mind is racing a mile a minute in different directions, and I just, I just need to be still and know that you are God. I need you to speak. Lord, I know that's true for all of us as your people. We want to hear from you. So we ask your blessing on this time. We ask your blessing on the reading, the preaching of your word. And we ask it all in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And today we're moving into the second list of qualifications. If you were with us last week, you know we saw the qualifications for the, the elders, the overseers. Uh, I told you last week, elders, overseers, bishops, pastors, they're synonymous for the same office. Uh, those are the ones who preach and teach and exercise authority over the congregation. So we walked through that list. Uh, this week we come to another list, and this is the, the list of qualifications for deacons. And perhaps it feels odd to spend two Sundays in a row walking through these lists of qualifications. What are we doing here? Well, I want to encourage you by beginning with a lament from Jerome. He was one of the church fathers in the 4th century. And here's his lament. I think this rings true here in the 21st century as well. He wrote, Many their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their ceilings glittering with gold, their altars studded with jewels, yet to the choice of Christ's ministers no heed is paid. So Jerome was lamenting something that I think is a live issue today. It's easy to focus on the externals. So this series is called The Household of God, and when you see that title, perhaps you think of the building, the household of God, you know, the the church, the place. And we get excited about things like building projects, And we get excited about buying property, and we get really excited about maybe upgrading the chairs. Let's be honest, we're all a little bit excited about that, right? Churches have done this through the ages, get real excited about the externals, and yet how often do do we fly right past the most important thing, which is putting people in place that will properly resemble Christ, in our elders, in our deacons. He says, this is a piece that is that we have breezed past through the ages to our great harm. This, this matters. It's hugely important. And so I'd invite you once more to lean in and listen close as he describes the qualifications for the deacons, those who are called to serve in the church. We find the qualifications in verses 8 to 13 of 1 Timothy 3. So would you look there with me now? Hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Now, unfortunately, as we come to consider deacons, we bring with us confusion and baggage, and, and different confusion and baggage from each one of us. Some of us grew up in churches that didn't have deacons, and so we are, we're clueless right now. We have no idea what this could possibly look like, what it should look like. Others of us grew up in churches where this was done wrongly, and we experienced the fights where you had a deacon's board and an elder board, and they were these co-authorities battling with each other for power, and, and the whole thing just really puts us off. And so in all the confusion and baggage, I thought perhaps we should take a different approach this morning and spend the first half of our time just figuring out where, where we need to begin when we consider deacons. Like, what do we mean when we use that term, deacon? What is a deacon? That's the first question I want to ask. And we're going to spend a, a good chunk of time answering this question because we need to begin at the same place. In the New Testament, when it comes to the, the office of deacon, there are four passages that refer to this office. Two of them are explicit, one of them is implied, and then one of them is, I think, explicit, but it is contested. And so we're going to work through those as we answer this question. The two that are explicit, first of all, we've got our text in front of us today, 1 Timothy 3. But the other is Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. So from that text, we can draw our first obvious but important conclusion. The observation is this. First, deacons are not elders. And perhaps that seems like that's too basic to even say, and yet it, it needs to be said. If you look at Philippians 1, verse 1, it says the deacons and the overseers. That and is an important word. Because when these two offices are merged together, that's where problems occur. Again, if you look at 1 Timothy 3, he's got the qualifications for the elders, the qualifications for the deacons, and they are different. They're different offices. They have different responsibilities. If you read through the list of qualifications for the deacons, you're going to notice that they are not required to be able to teach. The elders were. The deacons are not. Why is that? Well, because for the elders, their office is one of teaching and exercising authority. But it is not so for the deacons. They, they, it's a different office with a different role. Okay, so we see that first. That's important. Churches that have gotten this wrong, churches that have treated their deacons like elders, have found themselves facing a lot of conflict and confusion. Not the same. But that begs the question, well then, well, then what are the deacons? If they're not the elders, what are they? That brings us to our second observation. Deacons are servants. In fact, the Greek word for deacon literally is the word for servant. It's defined as one who serves as an intermediary in a transaction, an agent, an intermediary, a, a courier, one who gets something done at the behest of a superior, an assistant. So contrary to popular practice, the deacons aren't meant to be on a board overseeing the church, combating with the elders, trying to keep them in line. That's not the biblical practice. They're the servants who operated at the discretion of the elders to meet the tangible needs in the community. I mentioned off the top that there's four passages that refer to this office. Two of them are explicit. 1 Timothy 3, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, we've seen those. The third one is implicit. So it doesn't actually refer to the, the office of deacons, and yet we all agree it's certainly pointing forward to something. We find that passage in Acts chapter 6. I'd invite you to look there with me now if you'd like. Turn in your Bible. Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6, and I'm going to make a few observations. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So you imagine you're in the church in Jerusalem, and we've got some Greeks in the church, and these are Gentiles, they've come to the faith, and they're saying, hey, listen, the Jewish widows are getting cared for, but the Greek widows are being neglected. So that's the issue here. And so the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve, to deacon, it's the same word, to deacon the tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Interestingly, that word for ministry is also the word deacon. So he said, we shouldn't be serving the tables. We should be serving the word. Verse 5, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. So here we find an anticipation of the office of deacon. I say anticipation because I'm... I want to be careful not to draw a one-to-one correspondence. Nowhere in this passage are they referred to as deacons, so we need to acknowledge that. And also, this isn't a passage about elders uh, assigning, uh, delegating responsibility. These are the apostles setting apart men. So for those reasons, we need to be careful not to draw a one-to-one, and yet nevertheless, we would all say that there's certainly a, a prototype being presented here, a principle being put forward. And the principle is this. If those who are called to serve the word are forced to neglect that responsibility in order to serve the tables, then the whole church is going to suffer. So that's the pattern we see here in Acts 6. So there are some who are called to to serve the church by teaching and exercising authority. And as we saw last week, those are the elders. That's their responsibility. They've been set apart by the congregation for that task. And so we don't want them neglecting that task to be serving the tables and meeting the physical needs. The principle is that we ought to set other people apart to carry that burden. Now, deacons are not elders, they're servants, so that we've seen these two things, and that's important to bear in mind as we come to our next point, which has been an area of disagreement within wider evangelicalism. Third, we believe that deacons can be men or women. So once again, I told you there's four passages that refer to this office. Two are explicit. First Timothy 3, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. one is implicit. It's anticipating the office. That's Acts chapter 6. But then fourth, there's one that has been contested, and that's in Romans 16, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kentre. Now that's, notice I quoted the NIV. The NIV refers to her as a deacon. Uh, if, If you're reading in the ESV, you'll see the ESV refers to her as a servant. So it takes that same word, deacon, but it translates it differently. And that's because good, faithful Christians have disagreed on this issue as to whether or not it's appropriate for women to serve in this office. And we have to deal with that question because that's going to impact the way we deal with our text this morning. In verse 11, for example, we read, Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And if you read that at first glance, you might walk away assuming that there's qualifications for the deacons, and part of the qualification is that their wives need to be living appropriately, that's possible. But in the Greek, the word for wife and the word for woman, it's the same word, gune. And in fact, in the Greek text, there is no article there. The, the word that you see is there. 
That's not in the Greek, so that's, in, that's supplied in the ESV for the translation. But to be fair, I want to read the NIV translation, which says, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. So what do we, what do we make of this? Because it's not, it's not like this is insignificant. It matters. Is Paul appointing male deacons and, and teaching us how their wives ought to also behave? Or is Paul appointing deacons and teaching us how the men should behave and how the women should behave? That's an important question. So as we answer that, I, a couple things we should bear in mind as we approach the text. First, I think we should look back to the, the prohibitions that Paul put on women. We looked at that in chapter 2. And if you remember back to chapter 2 in verses 11 to 15, the only restriction that Paul put on the women was that they were not to teach and exercise authority in the church. And to teach and to exercise authority is the job of who? It's the job of the elders. And so that prohibition, that restriction, kept them from holding the office of eldership. However, when we look at the role of deacon, we see that they're not called to teach. That's not part of their description. They're not to be able to teach. They're not the ones that are exercising authority over the church. And so there's nothing tied up in the office of deacon that would disqualify women in terms of his prohibition. So we bear that in mind. But then also, we should look at what the early church understood. Right? What did the early church do with this question? Well, the evidence that we have suggests that they recognized female deacons. For example, around 130 A.D., so this is, this is you know, the next generation after this group, people would still be alive from, who received Paul's letter, people who were children in those days. That next generation was facing heavy persecution. Pliny, the governor of Bithynia, would normally execute Christians if they refused to renounce the faith. At this point, there was serious persecution. Christians are being executed. And yet, evidently, sometimes he would torture Christians so that he could try and figure out what's going on in this movement. Why does it continue to grow even as we're exterminating them? He wrote a letter describing one such episode. Here's what Pliny wrote. I thought it therefore necessary to try and find the truth of the matter about Christianity by torture as well. And that from two female slaves who were called deaconesses. So here we have in this early church that there are women who are set apart with the office of deacon. So as I put that together, and again, faithful Christians have disagreed, but as I put together the evidence as I see it, I see Phoebe referred to with the office of deacon, and the earliest church recognizing female deacons, and Paul listing qualifications for for gune, for the women, in his qualifications for deacons. And I see nothing within the office of the deacon that would be off limits for women, according to 1 Timothy 2. Therefore, I see no reason why we should impose a restriction on this office. So deacons can be men, deacons can be women. And that brings us to the fourth thing we see here. Finally, deacons are worthy of great respect. With all the talk thus far about how how deacons aren't elders and how deacons don't teach and exercise authority and how deacons are servants, you might be tempted to sit back and think, okay, so last week we talked about the office that you want, and this week we're talking about the the folks who don't measure up. And I just want to make it crystal clear that that is not the case that it is a noble thing to serve as a deacon. They are not less than an elder in any way. Couldn't be further from the truth. Elders are not superior to deacons. Elders are not superior to evangelists. Elders are not superior to the the prayer warriors who are stuck in a nursing home or to the, the mothers who are at home watching their kids. That's not how God's kingdom works. 
We play different roles, yes. We have different responsibilities, yes. But as we saw two weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 12, we're all irreplaceable in the body of Christ. We all play a part. In fact, Paul said, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Deacons are indispensable. To be a deacon, yes, is to be a servant, but in God's kingdom, to be a servant is to be great. Jesus said that. In fact, Jesus modeled that. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to, not to be served, that's the word deacon, came not to be deaconed, but to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus describes himself elsewhere as the, the good shepherd. So he describes himself in roles that we would attribute to the elders. Jesus is the teacher, again, a role that we would attribute to the elders. But Jesus also describes himself as the deacon, the great exemplary deacon who serves his people, who saw himself not as above any of these tasks, one who came to serve. In God's kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. Therefore, in the same way that we were reminded last week that it's a noble thing to aspire to the office of elder, here we read in verse 13, 1 Timothy 3, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I'll pause here. It's, you know, it's interesting to me as I was looking at how the day was unfolding. Um, Ron is our lone deacon. He's our staff deacon. And uh, Ron just announced that he's, he's moving out of that role. You noticed that? Um, we didn't line this up. I, I promise. We didn't sit down and say, you know what you should do? We should, we should structure this so that you do this on exactly the day that we walk through the qualifications for deacons. We didn't pick this series in anticipation. Again, this is actually this was news to me as of last month. Um, so as I look at the text before us and the circumstances around us, I just see God's kindness to us as a people, his providence, his wisdom. God's drawing us to this text. And he's showing us the the nobility of the deacon, the need for the deacon. And if, in case you're wondering, well, what does that look like? I would just commend you to consider our brother Ron. What a, what a great example that he set for us. Not to put him on a pedestal, but wow. They gain good standing for themselves, right? It's a noble thing when you can see someone and you can, you can point back to the pattern of faithfulness in their life. But he goes on and he says something further, the Apostle Paul, something that's almost a bit jarring. He says, and also great confidence in the faith. What does that mean? You know, my, my one confidence when I stand before the Lord is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. That's my confidence. Right? When I stand before the Lord, I'm not going to talk about all the great things I've done, uh, all, all, the, all the works that I think are worthy of recognition. No, my only confidence when I stand before the Lord is that Jesus Christ bled and died for my sin, and I'm clean, and I'm forgiven. That's my one confidence before the Lord. Nevertheless, the Apostle Paul says here, if you serve well as a deacon, you actually gain for yourself a great confidence in the faith. So what, how do we hold that together theologically? What is he saying? I think the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25 points us in the right direction. In this parable, Jesus talks about how in the final judgment, some are, they come before the Lord and they're standing there in judgment and He rewards them for giving Him a drink when He was thirsty and giving Him food when He was hungry and housing Him when He didn't have a place to stay. And those folks are confused in the parable and they say, Jesus, we never gave you a drink and we didn't give you a place to stay. 
And do you remember what Jesus said to them? Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I think that gets to the heart of this great confidence that Paul's alluding to here. To be a deacon is to devote your life to the service of the least of these, Jesus' brothers. It's to make a meal for the widow in need. To coordinate a place to stay for the believer who just lost their apartment. To distribute benevolence to those who have fallen on hard times. To, to show the tangible love of Christ to the people of God. To be the hands and feet of Jesus Himself. In short, to be a deacon is to devote yourself to serving Jesus by serving His people. And as you do that well, oh, you will gain a good standing in the community. And you will gain a great confidence in the faith. You put your head on the pillow at night and say, I served your people, Jesus. I served them. Those people that you love. Those people that you shed your blood for. I poured myself out for them today. It's a noble thing. And in summary, deacons are not elders. They don't fulfill the same role. They don't teach. They don't exercise authority. What are they? Deacons are servants. Therefore, deacons can be men or women. And deacons are worthy of great respect. That's how we understand the office of deacon here in this place. Now that being said, with the time we have left, we're going to zoom in now and consider the qualifications for deacons that we have in this passage. And if you're looking at your watch right now and you're saying, whoa, we're zooming in now to the passage, I just want to speak a word to you. The qualifications for deacons have a lot of carryover from the qualifications for elders. And so we're not going to to rehash some of the things that we unpacked last week. If you missed it last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. You can... This is really part one and part two, the qualifications of the officers in the church. So that enables us to move a little bit quicker today to summarize some of these together. But before we do jump in, I just want to show you one last thing. If you have your Bible open, I want you to even just physically look at the list for the, the overseers, the elders, and look at the list for the deacons. Notice that they're just about the same in length which suggests to me that they're just about the same in significance and importance and in value. We need to take this seriously. Just even physically, as I look at the page, I'm reminded, God would have us take this seriously. Sometimes we fall into the trap of of elevating the elders and the overseers and saying, okay, we take that deadly seriously, but then we'll just throw any Tommy with a tool belt into the diaconate. Lucy, can you make lasagnas? You're in. And this text reminds us that that's not the case. That for the elders and for the deacons, we need to be observing the the character closely. And again, they're not called to any superhuman tasks. They're called to just an extraordinary, exemplary character. So let's lean in. Let's look close at these qualifications. We're going to summarize the qualifications under four headings this morning. First, deacons must demonstrate self-control. And as with the elders, this self-control should be evident in every area, every aspect of their lives, from their behavior to their speech, to their habits, to their finances. We see this in verse 8. He says, deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And similar qualifications are highlighted for the women in verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers. That word dignified occurs in both verses. I want to just clarify. It describes a person whose attitudes and whose conduct win. It refers to a respectable 
well-thought-of person. Now, of course, that ought to be true of all of us as ambassadors of Christ. You know, as a Christian, that's what you are. You're called to resemble Jesus to the watching world. And so we all ought to have character that is exemplary, that should win the admiration of others. Nevertheless, what we see in, in both of these lists of qualifications is that those who are set apart for offices in the church, the, the stakes are even higher for them. He says, you can't, you can't budge on this, you can't give on this, because as they go into the world and they serve in Jesus' name, it reflects back on Christ. And so they need to be dignified. They need to be exemplary in their example. There needs to be self-control. If Lucy makes a lasagna and she brings it and then she proceeds to, to gossip in her meeting and, and to slander others, you, you defame the gospel. This isn't service. That's, that's dangerous. That's destructive. If Tommy brings his tool belt and he makes, he makes a nice cabinet for, for a widow in the church who, who needs a cabinet, but then he goes and he spends three hours at the bar on his way home, again, it, that's, that's no good for anyone. Because we need more than a cabinet. We need gospel service that points people to Christ. It does a disservice to our witness in the world. It also does a disservice to our witness in the church. And I'm sure some of us can point to experiences like this where, you know, if you're friends with Lucy and her lasagnas, but you know that Lucy doesn't live for the Lord. Lucy is always gossiping and slandering everyone. See, Lucy's tearing people down all the time. What, what does that make you think about the leadership that would put her in this position? That would allow her to, to continue to serve in this way and to turn a blind eye to her sin? Or Tommy, you know, what, what do Tommy's kids say when they say, man, my dad's got an alcohol problem and it's hurting our family, but the church doesn't seem to care because they need his tool belt. These are live issues in the church. These things happen all the time. It's, and it happens just because of pragmatism. Do you know what pragmatism is? It's just doing something because it works. Pragmatism is a real danger in the church because needs arise, and they're real needs. You know, a, there's a fire, and you've got you've to put out that fire. And the way that we operate so often, we just want to find whatever will work. Pragmatism, whatever will work, and then we do it. And, and we ignore the obvious disqualifying sin. We ignore the things that Paul highlights in this list because we just want to get it done and dealt with. Those are the things that happen in churches that aren't careful. So we need to be a church that is careful with our elders and here with our deacons. They need to exhibit self-control. In the blueprints of a healthy church, Paul's reminding us we cannot compromise in behavior, in speech, in habits, in finances. Deacons must demonstrate self-control. Second, deacons must have a firm grasp of the faith. We see this in verse 9. It says, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, what exactly is the mystery of the faith? It's not a, a term that we use, and yet we see it all over the place in the New Testament. One commentator notes, In the New Testament, it, this term, it signifies the secret of salvation through Jesus Christ, which is revealed by the Holy Spirit to all. Today, the word mystery implies knowledge withheld, but in the Bible, it indicates truth revealed. So what we see here is that the deacons need to have a firm grasp of the faith. They need to understand the gospel. They need to be prepared to give a defense for the faith, as we saw in 1 Peter. Why is that? Well, because Lucy's not just delivering a lasagna. Lucy is ministering to a person who's hurting, a person who's in need. And when you minister to hurting people, you'd better expect that there are going to be gospel opportunities. 
opportunities to pray, opportunities to be a listening ear, opportunities to, to give good gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Lucy and her lasagnas, Tommy with his tool belt, any deacon who serves in that function, they need to have a firm understanding because opportunities will arise. And we as a church want to appoint people who won't miss opportunities. And again, I want to be careful. I'm not putting him up on a pedestal. But I've watched our brother Ron didn't miss opportunities. I've watched Ron would go and he'd, he'd go to the clinic where hurting people are being ministered to and, and Ron would be there. And he'd be looking for opportunities to point them to Christ. Because we're not just meeting the physical needs. We want to direct their hearts, their attention to the, to the real solution that they're looking for. And that is Jesus. Deacons need to be able to do that. And more than a mere understanding of the faith, the text says deacons need to live with a clear conscience. That is to say, the deacon doesn't simply need to pass the doctrine test on paper. They need to pass it in their lives. William Mounts describes it this way. He says, it's not sufficient to have a grasp on the theological profession of the church. That knowledge must be accompanied with the appropriate behavior. In this case, a conscience that's clear from any stain of sin. So you could have the best theology in the world, but if your character does not resemble Christ, if your character doesn't resemble the faith that you profess, well then it's no good. So the elders are called to be able to teach. And the deacons here are called to hold to affirm both are required to walk the walk. That's what I hope you would see at the end of this time we spent in 1 Timothy 3. Both are required to walk the walk. Deacons must have a firm grasp of the faith. Third, deacons must be tried and tested. We see this in verse 10. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. If you were here last week, this qualification sounds very similar to one of the qualifications for the elders, that they shouldn't be men who are new to the faith. He said, you don't want to rush men in when you haven't had a chance to observe their life. That, could, that can be a disaster. And so it is here. He says, they should be tested first. The emphasis seems to be on patience. And I'm, I'm hearing that loud and clear. I'm trying to store that in my heart and be corrected because we are a people who want to move quickly. Right? We just want, we want quick solutions. We jump first, ask questions later. You know, we celebrate that in our culture. People who, just, who act quickly and decisively. And Paul says here, hey, hey, hey. Just whew, slow down. Slow down before you appoint your elders. Slow down before you appoint your deacons. Remember the context? Here in first century Ephesus, the church is in shambles because some of the elders who they had appointed had gone off the rails. And I would imagine, though it's not identified in the text, I would imagine some deacons had followed suit and so Paul says, hey, you know, as we, as we come at this again, let's put up a healthy wall here. Let's, let's put some things in place that will keep us from falling over the same ledge. Take your time. Take your time. Let them be tested first. He's writing here to mitigate the problem for the future, for the future and to establish a pattern of deliberation and patience. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't specify what the test needs to look like, and I'm, I think that's very helpful. In fact, when you read the New Testament, there's a lot of things about the diaconate that aren't clarified. What exactly did they do? How exactly did they meet the physical needs in their congregations? We see a little glimpse of it in Acts chapter 6. But I think the reason why that's not written into the blueprints is because the needs are going to be different in each context. We certainly have different needs here in 21st century Aurelia than they did in Jerusalem. 
So that's not written in. And then also, the, the nature of the test isn't written in. He doesn't tell us exactly what to do. Do you put them on a year of probation and just wait and see? Right? Do, do you put out a, a survey? Did you have, do you have their wife fill in some things? Like, what does that look like? He doesn't say. But the test itself is universal. Alexander Strock notes, the examination and approval of elders and deacons is one of the most important decisions a congregation and its leaders will make in the life of the church. I hope you hear that. I agree wholeheartedly. The examination and approval of elders and deacons is one of the most important decisions a congregation and its leaders will make in the life of the church. If you get this wrong, you're going to have years and years of hurt and pain. You get this wrong, you're going to have church splits. Um, this isn't speculation. This happens all around us. This is, this is reality. Therefore, we need to be a people who are very careful. And I would argue, church, I want to see us do this better as a congregation. In our appointment of elders, in our appointment of deacons, I, I feel as if the process we followed thus far has been faithful, but boy, there's room to grow. So in the appointment of elders and in deacons, I want it to be said of us that we were deliberate, that we were thorough, that we were patient. That seems to be the, the approach that God blesses. And finally... Deacons must be faithful in all things. In verse 12, Paul says of the men, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, as we noted last week, we, we walked into this last week, but I want to be clear. This qualification is not stating that a deacon must be married. We know this because in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he, he said it's exemplary that some of you have been called to singleness and celibacy. That's wonderful. It's a gift from God. So what's he saying then? He's saying that a deacon is to be a one-woman man. He's calling for faithfulness and fidelity. So in the same way that we would screen a we would have their wife fill out a questionnaire and we'd look them in the eyes and ask really difficult, awkward questions. He says, so too should you do that here. The deacons are going to be serving some of the most vulnerable people in the community and the congregation. They need to be above reproach. They need to be faithful. There needs to be fidelity. You need to do due diligence and look into this. And in the same way, when he refers to their children, the qualification isn't that a deacon must have children. That's not it. What it is saying is that a deacon with children should manage his household well. As we saw last week, if you want to discern who a person is, you need to find out who they are at home. Now likewise, in verse 11, he says of the women that they are to be sober-minded, faithful in all things. The overarching theme in these qualifications is that the deacon must have a demonstrated track record of faithfulness in the assignments they've already been given. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Before you jump in to take on new responsibilities, how are you doing with your spouse? But before you take on more, how are your kids? How are you leading them? How's your household? Is your household in order? How are your finances? Are you keeping track of, of these things? Before we ask you to demonstrate faithfulness in a, in a larger sphere, have you demonstrated faithfulness in your current sphere? Now, this is in keeping with the wisdom of Jesus. If you remember in the parable of the talents, Jesus taught that there was a servant. He had worked diligently with the resources that God had entrusted to him. And then when that servant came to his master, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the principle here. Faithful in all things. 
Faithful in the marriage. Faithful in the home. Faithful in the sphere of influence where God has you now. And if you've demonstrated faithfulness there, well then that's good reason why perhaps God would call you to have a, a larger sphere of influence in the church. Before a person is set apart as deacon, therefore, in summary, as an official servant in the church, they must demonstrate self-control. They must have a firm grasp of the faith. They must be tried and tested, and they must be faithful in all things. Now, with those qualifications in mind, I see two implications for us as a congregation moving forward. Here very quickly. First of all, in light of what we've seen in the text, I would argue that we need to be protective of the focus and attention of our elders. Now, if you read your New Testament carefully, you see that not every church in the New Testament had deacons. They didn't. Um, So the, the church in Philippi did, and he's saying to the church in Ephesus that they need deacons. But interestingly, when you read Paul's letter to Titus, who's ministering in Crete, as, as Paul's laying out the blueprints for Titus in Crete, he doesn't mention deacons at all. Why is that? Well, we believe it's because the church in Titus was smaller. The needs were not pressing. That they were able to do ministry in the church in Titus without having the elders being completely distracted and taken off assignment by the, the physical needs. Some churches are small enough that you can exist without deacons. But as circumstances change, and they always do change, as, as the needs grow, well, then that's when the church really needs to have this in place. So that's what we saw in Acts chapter 6, right? They, they were doing ministry, and they're, they're moving about as per usual, but then all of a sudden they realize that there's a whole class of widows here that we've been missing, that we've been working real hard, and somehow we're still missing it. They're feeling neglected. And if we're going to meet the need that they're presenting, well, we're not going to be able to preach the word anymore. And we're not going to be able to pray. We're going to be so caught up in caring for these needs. And so we need to appoint some people. We need to put some structure in place so that we can focus on what God has called us to. That's the principle. And so I would say as a church, as we walk through this passage, what should we see? We should see the importance of this. That very quickly a church can slip into a place where the, where the elders, the overseers, the pastors, the shepherds are so overwhelmed by the physical needs that they that they're neglecting the things that God has set them apart to do, that you as a congregation have set them apart to do. So let's be realistic. Our brother Ron, our, our lone deacon, just stepped down. God's, God's moved him to another part of the playing field. Praise God. He's, he, and that's exactly right. He's moved him to the right spot. But now let's think as a church at Redeemer, there are some shoes to fill. There are some needs that, that need to be met. And our answer cannot be, well, okay, that's good. Well, I guess... I guess the elders, I guess Gary and Harry and Keith and Clyde need to roll up their sleeves and start organizing the chairs and putting things together with the benevolence. That can't be our solution. It can't be our solution. We need to guard their time and their focus. That they can focus on what God has called them to focus on. Now, is that because manual labor and service and physical needs are beneath the elders? By no means. By no means. That is not what he's saying. What he is saying is that they've been called to serve the church by teaching. Remember in in Acts chapter 6, I pointed out, they said it's not right for us to be serving tables, to be deaconing the tables. They said we are to be ministering the word. And it's the same Greek word. We're to be deaconing the word. That's how we serve as the elders. We teach, we pray, we lead. That's our service. And it's a big task. Therefore, we need to find some people in this congregation and set them apart for this role. We need to guard their time, their focus, their attention. So that's the first thing we need to see and take seriously And it leads to our last implication, and that is that we need to be proactive praying about and preparing for deacons at Redeemer. 
So if a deacon needs to be tested before they're instated, and if the circumstances can change in a hurry, then it sounds to me like we need to get this process moving now before the pressing needs arise. Right? We want to go through this process slowly without feeling like there are fires all around us. We need to get moving. We need to get praying. We need to identify and train some godly men and women. We need to pray that God would raise up the right people to serve at the right time. And if you'd say, well, what have you been doing, elders? I want you to know we, we ran the D3 program, Training of Deacons, about three years ago. And some of you were in that program. And then the year leading up to our launch, the elders went through a year-long study on deacons. We wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page. What do the deacons do? What does that ministry look like? What are we gonna, what's our plan moving forward? And after a year of study, we decided that for the first year of the launch, we were going to wait to roll out the diaconate. Because we've got a lot of new happening already. And I'm feeling that. We didn't anticipate COVID. Uh, we said we're gonna, there's going to be a lot of moving pieces, so let's, before we start something new, let's get this in order. I think that was the right decision. However, we're halfway through the year, and in the very new fu- near future, we're going to need to get the diaconate up and running. And so I'm inviting you to hold us to that. In the same way that I issued a call last Sunday, inviting you to review the qualifications for elders and to pray through whether or not God might be calling you to this role, today I want to commend you to read through the qualifications for the diaconate and pray and discern. Is, would God be calling you to this ministry? Would God be calling you to this office? As it is with an elder, it is a, is a noble thing to serve well in the office of deacon. Pray through. Is this you? God's Word teaches us here that a healthy church sets apart godly men and women in various capacities and here to serve as deacons. Therefore, if we would be a healthy church moving forward, that's my ambition, we need to act upon what we've seen. We need qualified elders. Let's pray for them. We need qualified deacons. Let's pray for them. And we need them sooner than later. So let's pray urgently. Because this is His church and these are His instructions And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the rhythm that comes through your word. Lord, as I I looked ahead and I saw this passage before us for this Sunday, Lord, I confess in my flesh there are other things that are pressing that I would have loved to have spoken to. There are other, other passages that I would have loved to direct our attention to. But you are the Lord of this church. And you know what we need. And you set it apart that we would discuss this today. And then you set it apart that Ron would make his announcement today. And that we would feel this just a little bit differently than perhaps we would have felt it last week. And I just thank you for your wisdom. I thank you that you know what's best. Lord, I thank you that that you always preach a better sermon than I ever preach. That your Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of your people, pressing truths in that need to be pressed in, making applications that I never saw. Lord, you are leading and directing this church because it is your church. And Lord, we we find great confidence in that. Uh, Lord, nevertheless, we look at our needs, and Lord, we would just say, we are a needy people. Lord, we need you to raise up servants. We need you to raise up people who can step into the role of, of deacon. Lord, we need, we need volunteers in almost every department. Lord, we're just feeling the need right now. Uh, and Lord, we trust that you'll provide. We do. So God, we're looking to you with anticipation, with expectation, with earnest need. 
And the Lord, we're asking that you would fill up where we're lacking. God, I thank you that you are wise. You move people out so that you can move others in. Uh, you, you move us to exactly where we ought to be, and we, just, we trust that your plan is exactly, exactly perfect, even in seasons when it feels a little bit uncomfortable. So Lord, we look to you now. We ask for your wisdom, your direction, your leading. And Lord, in all of this, we pray that we would just commend the gospel to our community. Lord, that we wouldn't be so caught up looking at these insulated things and putting in structures in place here that we, would, that we wouldn't miss the big picture. We need elders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We need deacons so that the ministry can go forward without hindrance. Ultimately, we need these things because we want the gospel to advance here and in this city. Lord, so I pray that you would keep us kingdom-minded, keep us focused on the big picture. Once again, Lord, thank you for moving our brother Ron to a place where we see the kingdom advancing in this city. Oh, Lord, we're so excited about what you're doing. Here, there, uh, Lord, in the churches around us, you are so good. And Lord, it's a joy to be a part of this ministry. So Lord, bless us now. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?